is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part one with Vicki Lewis, we cover a little bit of everything from her life path to Steve Jobs, being kind and grounded, and making lists on what we're afraid of and the reality to get unstuck. So I hope you enjoy this part one with Vicki Lewis. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Vicki Lewis. Vicki, thank you for joining me today. Oh, Clayton, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. As we, as we, it sounded a little bit like flow. As, as I put together this conversation, not just finding Nemo, but all your resume, it, we cannot make it through in four parts to discuss <laughs> things you've learned or enjoyed about this entire resume. I mean, the, or enjoyed. that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the caliber of performance yeah. that you've given through your whole career, I, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's astounding, it's inspiring, and I'm excited to get a slice of your humanity, if you will, from the wow. thought process behind it. Um, before I get into any yeah. of that, I want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. What were your, enter, yeah. what were your entertainment dreams growing up? Well, I lived in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, in a very tiny, tiny town. Um, and so I didn't have access to, uh, we didn't go to theater shows. We didn't go to the movies a lot. Um, and But my mom was really good about putting us in ballet and piano, dance lessons and piano, hmm. because she didn't have that as a kid. She grew up really poor. And... Um, I was kind of doing that and sort of enjoying it. And, you know, then I was terrible at piano and then I sort of dropped off with that. And I was in high school and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't popular. I wasn't unpopular, but I was just sort of treading water. I didn't enjoy it. I felt insecure. And uh, my English teacher, Roger Grooms, came up to me one day and he said, I want to put you in this play. And I was like, okay, what's that? L literally. And so he put me in barefoot in the park Um and I, I was doing it. I didn't know. I was rehearsing. I was having fun. Um, and then the audience came and they started laughing. And I, I was horrified because I thought they were laughing at me, of course, because I was so insecure. And then people in the play and afterwards, they were like, no, 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 you're so funny. And, you know, I was still really young, but I thought, oh, I like this. I didn't even know I had the ability to do this. I thought I was just doing the play. And then I was sort of bitten, um, you know, and once somebody defined it for me, I guess, um, my humor, you know, yeah. I think you either have humor or you don't. And I was clearly had it, but I was using it as a defense mechanism. But then when you put words in it, it's far more entertaining. You know what I mean? So, yes. <laughs> you know, you know, like insecure, I still do it. If I'm insecure, I make like, no, I don't like you. So you don't like me, you know. But um, yeah, you give it words. And so I, I from there, it sort of started. And um, I went, yeah, I mean, I was in Cincinnati. So I, I went to the University of Cincinnati um, as a business major. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, there wasn't, we didn't have the luxury of sort of, you know, the money and the prestige of getting into CCM, which was connected with the University of Cincinnati. But I had gotten a job, this story ends really soon, in uh, at Opryland. And uh, the people that I had to go 
back and forth with on the weekends before we could actually stay down there for the summer uh, were Jason Graw and a, two, a few other people and they were in CCM. And so I made friends with them and then they were like, well, why don't you come over and just take a couple of the classes and then Worth Gardner who ran the program at CCM just said, you're coming over here. And I said, well, I don't have that kind of money and da, 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 and he made it happen. And so I was at CCM until I got my equity card. And then I got my equity card and I moved to New York. It was the old timey days. So I moved to New York with, I think I had $35. Now I had a place to live with like 117 people, but I was like singing telegrams and working at restaurants. And, um, and then I went to my first audition for a Broadway show and it was because I knew Mitch Lemsky, the stage manager, and he said, they're auditioning for this Broadway show and it's called Do Black Pat and Other Shoes Really Reflect Up? I don't know if you remember that. That's like before anybody's time. And I was like, well, I don't have an agent. He's like, well, they're auditioning at NOLA Studios from one to four. So I went over there and I sat and they called some girl's name and she didn't answer and I raised my hand and I just went in. And I sang for them and they're looking at me and then the resume and the confusion. And, and then uh, I got that show. And then I just kept doing that. I did that for years. I can't, I was in New York and I thought, oh, this is great. I got a Broadway show in 10 minutes. And then, you know, you realize, oh, I see. It doesn't really work like that. But I hung out for many, many years sort of doing terrible theater, any theater they would give me. And uh, yeah, and here I am. I I I love the 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 fact that there's TV, film, animated, theater, music. There's so many aspects of entertainment that you have worked in. What what comes to mind in terms of the perseverance to keep going, to keep you know keep auditioning and just say, hey, okay, sure, this is I'm going down this avenue today. I my perseverance was not a healthy perseverance early on. It was a kind of a, for lack of a better term, a desperation. And I, cause I kept thinking if I can get this, if I can get that, if I can get, well, if I can just get to Broadway, if I could just get on a television, if I could just get, and then, um, and there was, I'd say eight dead years, you know, from like 81 to, well, 81 to like 80, late eighties. You know, I did some Broadway shows. I did off Broadway. There was some really notable things, a lot of unnotable things. And then I sort of, I, well, I sang for the first film I got, which was I'll Do Anything. And, I, and they auditioned in New York. So they were looking for singers uh, because it was going to be a musical. And they hired me for that. James Brooks was in the room and he just kept asking me to sing things and sing things. And that was new to me. I, I was not in demand in New York at the time. And I got the movie and then while I was out there, I, they, I got Seinfeld. And then I ultimately got news radio a little bit later. Mm. And news radio was a, a, a sort of a really big moment in, in my life. And people paid attention and there was press. And in, in terms of the word famous or being feeling notable, that was it. Mm. And I had a really good run there of like six years of doing news radio and then mouse hunt and, you know, pushing all these major films. And in, at the end of that run, I went, I got very depressed because I realized that the money and all, all the things that had driven me through the years of my youth didn't make me happy in the way I thought they would. Now, I was grateful. Sure. sure. But 
I thought if I have this amount of money, if this amount of people taking my picture, this amount of, you know, that I would, that would bring happiness. And that's a rude awakening. And uh, so I, I really kind of broke. And then, but I, you know, as they say in therapy, I broke together, but you know, I broke for a while and then I took a step back and I remembered why I loved doing it. But it's a trick, especially in LA, it's tricky because the way people treat you when you're in television and film, the mirror of that is I'm the greatest. I can, you know, and spoiled people are acting any way they want and keeping their job and people aren't showing up on time. There's toxicity in it and there's great stuff in it. And um, so, yeah, it took me a minute, but yeah, I mean, that's a really short version of it. I mean, I got Finding Nemo because I had auditioned for A Bug's Life. And I, I remember my friend Dave Foley from News Radio. We had all gotten asked in to read. And I was with Dave. And then uh, I think El- Andy Dick was there. And Andy was in the room before us. And we could hear him going, well, you said you liked it. And you're going to get back to me. But like, is that, are you making that up? Or like, that's how Andy was, you know. Um, Anyway, I didn't get this, and Dave and I were like, really? Um, And I didn't get that movie, but Dave did. Mm. And then I got an offer to do Finding Nemo, and they had saved my voice, which they liked from Bug's Life, and kept sort of putting it under characters they thought it might work with. Mm. And they, they offered me Deb and Flo. And I had never done it, never, never done a voiceover. And at that time, those movies were huge. I mean, open, it was like Little Mermaid and there was like a few others in this one. And I was like, oh, that's cute. They flew me up to, you know, Pixar for four hours and fed me lunch. And I did these stupid lines in my head, I'm thinking, you know, and I had a great time. They treated me well. And I'm like, this is silly, you know, and then not to be this person, but we went to the premiere and Steven Root uh, was sitting next to me because he was also in it. Yes, he played Bubbles. And nobody wanted to sit next to Steve Jobs. And I was so, I'm just such a, you know, I was like, still, I'm from Ohio. Like, I got all these things. So I was like, why does nobody want to sit next to him? And they're like, we're intimidated. I was like, I'll sit next to him. I had one of the best conversations of my life. And everyone was like, I can't believe you're sitting next to Steve Jobs. Um, and then I was like, this was fun, wasn't it, Steven? To my friend Steven Root. And he's like, yeah. And I go, I guess like, do we get money or anything? He goes, um, yes. And so the check I got was $200,000, right? Yes. 200000 it was $194,000. Because the back end, people were renting that like gangbusters. Now that's not like that anymore. No. But if you remember at the time, everybody bought that DVD. Oh, yeah. It is now where it's streaming and you don't get that kind of back end. So I was blown away. Yeah. And then, of course, I was like, I like voiceover. This is fun. You know, <laughs> so it paid so well. Um, nothing paid as well as that. But I started doing, you know, a lot of voiceover. And it was a great way to make a living when you weren't, you know, doing other theater and other television or film. Yeah. Do you remember or what did you and Steve Jobs talk about? Um, well, I remember we had a conversation about tea. I said, and it's, it's really kind of poignant when I think back because 
don't know if he knew he was sick mm. at that time. It was 2001. Probably not. Mm -mm. Mm. But he said, I go, what, what does people ask you this all the time, but what advice do you give, you know, or what, what do you think is important? And he said, take care of your teeth. And he was serious. He was dead serious. Mm. And, you know, I just thought it was, I don't know. I've, upon, I think he wasn't taking care of his teeth. I think he knew it was a problem. I think we all know that disease gets in, like we know more now than we ever did about like dental health and stuff. Um, but that kind of stuck out, you know, he was very casual and easy to talk to. It wasn't, you know, we weren't talking about rockets or, you know, um, and I think he enjoyed that I didn't have a reference for him because we were just making jokes and talking about, I, I, if I had known what I know now, I wouldn't have been able to sit next to him either, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where to begin in a conversation. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. I also, because I had met, you know, I, I hate bringing this up, but it is a reference in my, in my uh, background. I lived with Nick Nolte. We met on the film of I'll Do Anything, which was the first movie I made. Mm. And so I had a, for many years a front row seat to let's go to dinner at the Xanax. And I'm like, the Xanax. Oh, Dick. Zan oh, okay. And like, here's, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone's mistress, you know, the hooker, the doctor feel good, the, you know, and I was around these people so often um and it's unappealing mostly um but i had had enough of that by the time i did finding nemo that sitting with people i realized they're just human beings and they're flawed and most of them are self-obsessed um some of them are fantastic and surprisingly wonderful uh i'll never forget uh, Jeff, um, I just forgot his last name. He's a big star, Bridges. Yeah. Jeff Bridges, one of the nicest people. You just get surprised. What starts to stick out is who's kind and grounded, you know, and the other people just kind of are a blur. But um, so I did have a little bit of that sort of, but, you know, I didn't know enough about Steve Jobs to be that. I, I've, I get and I've gotten through your whole career such a, a kind and grounded vibe and for you to keep that in the mind as you interact with so many individuals who are so sure of other ways of being i'm curious <laughs> i'm curious what that self-talk was for you to be like mm, that's not going to work for me this is not this isn't real you know or whatever i think well i think i i watched it and i found it unappealing mm. and then I honestly don't know the answer, except whenever I acted like that, whenever my insecurity got the best of me, which is why I think people do things like that, why people act like they're better than you, insult you, you know, try to freak you out, try to, you know, mess with your head. It's because if you back it up, they're insecure or they're self-loathing involved or there's, and whenever I acted like that, it gave me a stomach ache. Like mm. I would think about it at night. Mm. And also in my childhood, that came my way a lot and I knew how it felt. So it was always important to me to never make anybody feel like that and to sort of 
whenever I started to get full of myself, I would, I would do this thing where I would look around the room and I would say, who looks like they're the most uncomfortable? Let me go over and talk to them. I would just get out of myself. I don't know. It was a self, it was a self-protection mechanism. And, you know, now that I'm older, I simply won't put up with it. So if I see somebody bullying in any kind of manner, you know, anyone in any setting, I kind of step in. I'm not like, Hey, I'm important and you need to stop doing that. Mm. But I really try to, to dissipate it because I, I think it's toxic. Where did that come? Where did you learn that the, let me go speak to someone who looks the most uncomfortable in the room. When, what did that? I had a great therapist. I'm to be honest, because when I fell apart, I went into, I was always sort of in therapy, but when I had that sort of, I hit the wall and everything got really dark for me in a number of ways. um, I had to put myself back together in a way that was, healthy and not driven from insecurity and what the outside was like. And so that was, I got that tip from uh, Gary Fisher, who was, he just passed away, but who's a brilliant therapist and a, a brilliant psychological, I think, mind, um, gave me that simple trick. You know, I also do like the line. So I'll have like, why, what am I afraid of? And what's the reality? Cause I'll be like, oh, no one's liking what I'm doing and everyone thinking, and then I have to write down literally like, like a three-year-old, the reality. Well, no, you learned your lines and no. So I have these little sort of, I don't know, but Gary Fisher taught me that. If you are feeling insecure, go, go help somebody else. And, and that's my go-to now is that's why I teach. So if I give it away, if I help somebody else, if I, say hello and spend five minutes with someone who looks lonely i it's actually selfish because i feel better when i do that and it also immediately takes me out of what i was nervous about that was mainly self-serving yeah i guess flips the entire script in the mind yeah and and believe me you i'm not always successful at it you know i i please you know i'm riddled with i mean you know mental health issues i would say like <laughs> my mother my mother was very had a lot of anxiety you know no tools you know so i come by a lot of it naturally and i i watched it as a child i went ooh why doesn't she own her part you know like why so yeah i guess you could say i i learned from watching and then i i sought help when i was really falling apart and so i have those sort of tools in my pocket that i really try to use it's, it's amazing what happens when you vocalize a thought that's just outrageous, like writing it down. Yeah. The list is so smart. Right? Yeah. Is, the list is good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It just, it helps take you out because you're like, oh, of course, this is idiotic what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, what it is, I'm the piece of shit at the center of the universe, right? <laughs> so all I'm thinking about is me and I'm not feeling great and I feel underappreciated. And the minute you step out of that, you realize that there are so many other problems in the world and so many things you can spend that energy doing that helps somebody else. That's, I don't know why that spoke so loudly to me. I'm the piece of shit at the center of the universe. When you say that, <laughs> it takes you out. It takes you right out. Right? Uh, it's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is there a particular role or a project that has taught you the most about yourself or a significant amount? I learn the most from the things that go terribly wrong. Uh-huh. So, um, 
it was a television job. Do you remember Grace Under Fire? Yes. Oh, God. So remember that woman um, who was the lead in it? I think I've blocked her name out. Um, she was a stand-up comic, and she talked like this. And mm-hmm. Brett Butler. Brett Butler. And uh, so I auditioned for, like, you know, six times to be, like, her friend in the oil refinery. And, you know, I got on the set and I was like, this is really fun. And she was a downright monster. I don't say this about many people. She was a monster. And the, so we did the table read and I got laughs. She got tons of laughs. Everybody got laughs. Came back from lunch and most of my laughs were cut. And I thought, okay, I can play. This check is the same. I'll play this game. It's fine. Check is the same. And I mean, you know, I was like, this is not really it's a job. Not the role of a time. I'm the, I'm the girl at literally at the oil refinery that says like four lines an episode. But the reason they had cast me is it was written it had with not a lot of thought. Hmm. And um, I had found a way to make it funny anyway. So she would do things like we do a read. We have a five week, a day and then you film the show and in those days it was on video so you do one in the afternoon at five and one at eight right so you did two of them really funny yeah. and but she would one day i saw her she took a coke can and shook it really hard popped it and placed it at the writer and blew it in his face and said i'll be in my trailer when you're done right done writing dick jokes i'll never forget it and i was like and it was horrifying. And Julie White, who is a hero of mine, was in it. And she said, just stay out of the line of fire, honey. Just get in your trailer and stay out of the line of fire. Because she, she was a regular on it. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? And um, so I had found this like kind of like insecure Southern thing that I was doing in the oil refinery. I don't even remember it. And... I got laughs doing it. So in the first show, it got laughs. And Brett went to everybody, I guess, on the dinner break and said, I don't want her doing that. You know, it's getting a lot of, I don't know what she said. You know, it wasn't there. So the director comes over it. And he's like, so listen. And it's like five, two. They're like, sound, speech. Like, can you just like not do that? And I was like, huh, what? You know, like, what's going on? And then she comes over and she goes, you use the Southern accent. I'll fucking level you. Well. I looked at her and we started filming and that accent came out real strong. I was just like, are you serious? However, I went back for like one more episode. I think I, well, I was slated as a recurring and on the bowels of the second episode, by then we had these oil refinery outfits that were like jumpsuits and then these hats, right? Mine had become, she thought I looked too good in mine. So hers had a cinched belt and like a really cute, like, you know, work helmet thing. And mine was three sizes too big and the hat covered my face, right? So I was, as I was bowing, I'm like, I'm done. I'm done, right? I, I mean, I didn't, I couldn't do it. So I, I called my manager on the way home. I still had some, I think of the clothes on that I think I had like the shoes on still. And, couldn't you know, out, I grabbed my back. Um, no, and I said, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. Like, I'm not coming back. Yeah. And I just saw what she, and finally, I mean, look, she had a psychic break. She has since, I know, gotten a lot of help for herself. Um, but she was shaving her hair off 
and that's when they fired her. She had gotten mad, was just buzz cutting her hair. I mean, it was insane. But, you know, I looked at that and I went, what is happening? And everybody's doing this. Like, that's okay, Brett. You know, oh, I know we are writing bad jokes. Like, you just sprayed coke in his face. What is happening? You know, and everybody was, yeah, because she was making them a lot of money. Yeah. And that's toxic. But I yeah. remember just driving out of there thinking, I don't, I don't think I need to do this. You know, and that was, I had signed was a great experience. Home improvement was a wonderful experience. Murphy Brown, great. That was hideous. And I got news radio and I was so, I was a pig in shit because <sighs> we were all just, I, you know, we all had kind of, we, you know that Bette Midler line, everybody's got a fried egg. Some people wear them on the inside. Some people wear them on the outside. We all had our fried eggs on the outside. Like we were just like, I hate the way I am right now. Blah, blah. You know, we were a great think tank. Those were the best writers you could ask for. We, we were all enmeshed and it was so creative and so fun. And for me, that sort of topped out and I hadn't found anything since that matched. I've enjoyed myself and, and I learned from watching people that are better than me is, is the answer. But I also learned when it's so horrible, what I never want to do and yeah. what I, how I never want to be. Yeah. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.